wherever you are in the world. Prices are skyrocketing on everything from food. You've probably heard. This is the cost of the cost of living crisis. Quite a bit of this lately. Everything has gone sky high. But are consumers heeding these warnings? And are they actually changing where and how they choose to splash their cash? We'll be exploring why shoppers, once described as the eighth wonder of the modern world, could be about to tumble. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are global macroeconomist Anna Stubnitska, global technology portfolio manager Hyun Ho Son, and senior technology analyst Jonathan Tseng. It's wonderful to have you all here. Hello. Hello. Excellent. A very enthusiastic greeting to everybody. Well, Hyun Ho and Jonathan, um, you've both just returned from Silicon Valley, where you and other members of Fidelity's investment team have been talking to leaders from the tech industry. And, and Jonathan, I gather you spoke to 23 companies, 10 CEOs, and no fewer than three billionaire founders. More than anything else, I think I'm surprised that you found them in California and not bunkering down in New Zealand. No, it was great. And to be fair, that I think while the CEOs were in, in the office, a lot of the employees were still bunkering down in their Palo Alto homes. But it was great to be in the office and on the road. You know, in the past, we've been to Silicon Valley once or twice a year. We always get a big group of portfolio managers and investment analysts from Fidelity. Um, this was the first time we've been able to do this, for obvious reasons, since uh, 2019. Uh, and we're on the road with you know, 15 Fidelity investment folks from, from Tokyo, from Hong Kong, from London, from Toronto. And I said it was just great to sit down with these companies, look them in the eye, see them face to face and find out what's been happening in the world, especially at this time. Absolutely. Uh, well, we'll come to this time in just a moment with Anna. But um, Hyunho, what was the, the mood that you were picking up um, as you went around the different companies? You know, companies were quite in, in the uh, optimistic mood. During the pandemic, technology played quite important role um, for the consumers and businesses handling a lot of issues. And coming out of the pandemic, a lot of like consumer behavior, um, businesses dealing with all the issues, structurally changes. So you know, companies feel that you know their structural, you know, demand driver for technology product and services remain intact. So overall, uh, companies were quite um, optimistic mood. Optimistic. Well, that's good to hear. We're going to hear more from you later on. Um, but to bring the mood down, perhaps, second guessing you, Anna, but could you give us a bit of an economic backdrop to what else is going on in the world at the moment? Because it's been a difficult month, hasn't it? We've had inflation up, growth down. This isn't a blip. So paint the picture for us. What's What's the economy doing in general, Anna? It has been a difficult year already, I would say. Um, the current economic backdrop is recessionary, um, and uh, this is driven by a uh, confluence of uh, various shocks. But most of the shocks, all of the shocks, are systemic, and they are taking uh, time to work through the system. So a global doubt on, from here is our base case. And now the question is really how deep and how long a uh, recession is going to be and where uh, we are going to see actual negative growth uh, versus uh, just uh, growth below trend. Um, and we do expect recession in the US. In fact, we might already be in a recession there. Um, Europe is rapidly sliding into one. The UK might also see negative growth uh, over the next few months. 
Thank you, Anna. And I've been speaking to Fidelity's Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, to find out how these conditions are changing the company's core asset allocation. The challenge is when you look across markets that there is a fragmentation there. You can't um, uh, view it as it's one seamless sort of profile. There's many different uh, you know, individual country dynamics. And so, you know, for us that uh, you know, being a little bit more cautious, obviously on the, the US, um, being cautious on Europe, especially at this stage, um, which means that you know, we have to, uh, to think about um, where do we take on uh, some of that risk profile within the existing exposure to equities. And that has tended to push us more towards looking to China, to some of the emerging market Asia, where we feel that there's a, a better policy mix and a potential for um, uh, growth from the levels that have been discounted. If we look to credit markets, still a bias towards the investment grade area where we think risk adjusted returns are better than um, some of the risks still attached to uh, parts of the high yield market. Although, again, looking to Asia, it's interesting to see that obviously, you know, very um, challenging environment for high yield uh, with what's happening in, in the China property concerns. But, you know, getting back to levels where we think that actually it discounts an enormous amount and that we are going through the process. So some of the worst is over. And so looking ahead, you want to be slightly more favorable. When you look to currencies, you know, the dollar has continued to be um, that safe haven. But as I said, I think now to be starting to think about how that really does start to, um, to change, we look um, uh, you know, through the second half into 2023. Um, and then maybe the last part is just you know, in those cash levels that um, trying to balance, keeping some for um, longer term opportunities and still setbacks that we see over time as opposed to you know, some of the shorter term um, you know, interim repricing. And you know, overall, that means that we stay relatively um, cautious. We think that uh, one area where you'll see the markets, and it already has been, um, you know, building back a little bit more favorable is that duration. And so yields capping out a little bit at this stage because of the central bank policy being that little bit more hawkish and uh, aggressive now. Um, and the markets, though, uh, really seeking out that that means that the peak um, in this short term cycle is um, you know, going to be with us into 2023. And so you know, yields actually can start to roll over to reflect those uh, growth concerns. And I think that's, again, you know, a trade that you look at more tactically, but can run uh, you know, somewhat further. And you know, we'll be reviewing that as we um, you know, go through Q3. Hyunho, Andrew's setting out the company's own allocation. Um, how do you change things in your own portfolio as the market conditions and the economic situation that Anna was describing as they unfold? People think of tech the more growth-oriented, but I mean, tech sector is quite diverse, and there are you know, growth-oriented companies and value cash-generative company, a lot of cheap stock that are misunderstood by the market. And my investment style is that uh, I like to, to go against um, the current market sentiment and think about what the market is worried about. Like market is quite worried about recession, inflation, uh, market feel a lot of uncertainty for the future. So market become quite defensive, favor quality and more profitable company. Um, I see opportunity where the market um, is worried about, but long-term potential is quite positive. So areas that I'm 
I'm interested in increasing exposure to recently is like you know high growth, high multiple stocks that are currently not very profitable, but unit economics and long term fundamentals are very strong. I may need a software business, for example. You know, software businesses require you know huge upfront R and D activity, very intensive sales and marketing process. So customer acquisition cost is very high. And long-term, um, you know, lifetime customer value is not really visible in the short term. So at the current environment, the market doesn't like um, this type of business. But um, long-term perspective, I like. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the high-growth software space. You're finding grounds for optimism uh, amid the, um, the the general declining picture. I think that's a, a really interesting aspect because. You know, we can't avoid it. Um, inflation that um, uh, Anna's been talking about, that means that consumers are going to see their buying power eroded. Um, Anna, consumers in some markets have been protected by things like uh, well, the, the stimulus checks in, in the US, uh, savings rates um, were relatively high. Are these beginning to, to run out? And, and if they are, is that the same story everywhere or are there patches of light and shade as you look at um, various economies? Yes, there are some interesting uh, differences actually um, across the economies, but I would say one similarity everywhere is uh, that we are seeing uh, pretty dramatic drops in consumer confidence globally. Uh, so these are through through surveys, these are soft numbers, um, and all the consumers have concerns about the general economic situation over the next 12 months, about their own financial situation, and about high inflation. And at the same time, real wage growth and uh, real disposable income uh, growth has remained very weak, in fact, in the negative territory uh, almost everywhere. Uh, and that is um, uh, weighing on consumption. Uh, and uh, that excess savings uh, buffer uh, is rapidly getting de depleted. Or because consumers are cautious, uh, they don't want to spend more from that buffer. So what we're seeing is impact on consumption and particularly for low-income households. So this is quite disproportionate so far, and we can definitely see it uh, across income levels as well. So this sounds like um, red lights flashing across your dashboard um, everywhere. Yeah, so uh, in Europe, uh, consumer confidence uh, uh, slumped uh, uh, in February, March. Uh, this was uh, clearly driven by the war. It remains very low. Um, and um, what's interesting uh, is that the only thing really that is now supporting confidence as well as the economy overall is summer tourism. After two COVID summers, uh, tourism is booming. And in fact, it's the US consumer uh, that is driving tourism in Europe as um, they are taking advantage of uh, the strong dollar. Uh, so we're seeing the support through the summer. Uh, and this is uh, perhaps artificially inflating things, but actually uh, fundamentally Fundamentally, confidence is weak. Uh, wages, real wages, are very depressed in the negative territory. In fact, something we have never seen in the euro area in recent history. Um, and um, uh, so, uh, from here, it's all about what happens to to gas, uh, what happens uh, uh, to the war in Ukraine. And of course, the policy action, whether fiscally uh, the government can cushion that blow to consumers. And another factor that 
is potentially giving a more positive impression right now of the data uh, is uh, the the nominal versus real differential uh, in indicators. So, for example, we had really strong retail sales in the U.S. in the last um, reading, uh, and there was a lot of uh, um, optimism about the strength of the U.S. consumer. But actually, those numbers were nominal, so they include inflation. If you exclude inflation, if you deflate those numbers, actually retail sales have been falling since the start of the year uh, and posting year-on-year contraction already over the past few months in the US. So this this sort of nominal illusion uh, persists and I think uh, it it um, muddies uh, the perception of uh, the actual trend. So a false sense of security, perhaps, then, uh, if, if you look underneath the data and see what's actually going on with the impact of inflation. And you were saying earlier about the slightly artificial boost or temporary boost to the picture in Europe if American tourists are attracted here um, as well, with a darker winter lying ahead um, as the impact of the gas imports weighs in. OK, well, thank you for that, Anna. That's a, a top-down view. But Fidelity's investment team are renowned for their on-the-ground research, like that trip to Silicon Valley. So following their example, I ventured from our studio in the City of London to the West End to go shopping. And with me was Aneta Vinimko, who runs a consumer fund. Consumers have got eyes and ears. They can see headlines about inflation rising, rising rates, slowing growth. Aneta Vinimko, how resilient are they proving to be in the, in the light of all of that? Yes, consumers are scared. When you, when you look at consumer confidence, it's really low, all-time lows in some cases. Uh, so obviously, uh, there are many media is doing a really good job trying to scare them. But Better than central banks, perhaps. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, we are here on Oxford Street and they are still shopping and uh, looking at lots of data, whether coming from the US or coming out, even UK, the data is not that bad. Um, looking just at the consumer confidence, one would expect, expect much, much worse environment. So somehow, even though consumers are definitely scared or worried, they are still spending. Is there a difference? As you mentioned, we're in London right now. What about consumers in the US? Is there a difference in the, the headwinds that um, they're having to tackle and how they're reacting? Well, obviously, one cannot just say consumers because there are so many different groups of consumers. And uh, where we have seen issues is the low end, the low income consumer, where obviously the living cost crisis hitting every country almost globally has, has been an issue. And people had to cut and people had to reduce their discretionary spending and sometimes trade down even in, in terms of the non-discretionary spending. At the same time, the better off, the, the, the high-end consumer has accumulated quite a lot of savings. It's still doing quite well. The employment rates are actually very, very healthy uh, globally. Uh, so people have the income to spend and desire to spend after the lockdowns. After lockdowns. And I mean, 
lockdowns that have just been easing in parts of China, for example. So what about Chinese consumers? Um, what are you seeing there and what do you expect to happen over the rest of this year? A Chinese consumer is coming out. Um, the, the, the lockdowns there have been quite severe and maybe unexpected that it would be so difficult at the end of the pandemic. Um, and the consumer is also coming out and it's maybe a bit more cautious than in, in previous openings. But definitely we see, especially the better off Chinese consumer, has high desire to spend. So overall, you've got confidence that consumer spending is going to, it's uh, got a little, little bit more life left in it, certainly, for, uh, for some time. Um, but what about the patterns of spending um, as you look down in more detail at where their money is going? Uh, so consumers are buying things that they couldn't uh, buy or it didn't make sense to buy. So obviously they are not watching Netflix, they are in restaurants trying to travel, but then they get to the airports and real, realize that there are no planes. So then maybe they go to restaurant, back to the restaurant or back to a shop. Uh, so I think everyone is trying, uh, trying to, to, to enjoy themselves a bit, but at the same time, obviously, they are concerned because they hear that there is a massive recession coming their way. And when that recession comes, as I'm afraid we think it will, um, do you think that the considerations that consumers and that the retailers who serve those consumers have had, the considerations around sustainability, um, will they survive? I think they will survive because they're actually uh, very well entrenched uh, in, in, in the business models and in the strategies um, of companies. And obviously, we as investors keep questioning and asking, asking for more. So I, I think they will survive. But there is so much wastage in consumption, whether it's the manufacturing level or the end consumption level. So I think there are many ways to actually improve efficiency. And maybe a recession is a good time to take, take care of that. And as you look at this backdrop of weakening economy and um, you know still some some life in, in consumption yet, how are you adjusting your own allocations in uh, in the funds that you manage? So I'm trying to think like the consumer. So obviously, uh, what consumers will be trying to do more and more of is experiences. Uh, whether it's travel or whether it's education or whether all sorts of entertainment. Um, uh, that, that is quite, quite a large allocation for me in the fund. But then at the same time, there have been quite uh, dramatic changes in uh, the way consumers uh, are behaving. So digitalization has taken a step forward and it's not going back. Even though when one looks at the stock prices of consumer tech, one would think something has gone horribly wrong there. But in my mind, it was quite a big step forward. We are now in the time of an adjustment to the high comp, but as we get out of it, uh, we'll see the business models improving and the consumer being actually quite sticky. Uh, so I, I, I do see quite a lot of opportunities, but at the same time, I think the, the gradual shift away from the kind of wasteful consumption, wasteful from the point of view, this is not a product that lasts, or this is not a product that can be put back into the circular economy. Uh, my hope is that that consumption is going to get smaller and smaller. And obviously, I am, I am not putting any money behind that. Aneta Vinimko explaining the permanent changes to shopping habits brought about by lockdowns. Not all of them bad. Hello, a quick message. We love making these podcasts and we know you're part of a loyal audience that keeps coming back to listen to them. 
But podcast audience statistics are a blunt tool. There's only so much the numbers can tell us about what we're already doing and what we might do differently. We've got exciting ideas for some new features and even some new shows, but we want to make sure that we're giving you what you want. Something useful, unique and unforgettable. Maybe there's someone else you'd like to hear from at Fidelity, or beyond, or something else you'd like to hear more about. Maybe you've got your own burning questions to ask our guests. Now, our listenership is not in the millions, far from it, but you're an important, intelligent and influential bunch, so it's very likely that your feedback will make a difference. And on top of that, we'll enter you into a prize draw for £250 in Amazon vouchers, or we'll make an equivalent donation to a charity of your choice. What's not to like? We've made it easy for you. All you have to do is click on the link we've put in the podcast description, and that'll take you to a short survey. Or you can go directly to fidelityinternational.com forward slash survey. And the survey and prize draw close on September the 10th. We're really, really keen to hear from you and to learn more about what makes you tick. So please do tell us. Go to the survey link in the description on your podcast app or visit fidelityinternational.com forward slash survey. Can't wait to hear from you. Now, Jonathan, it became quite a cliche to talk about lockdowns accelerating changes already in train. But where has all of this left the tech sector? What were you trying to find out on your trip to Silicon Valley? We had 15 investors. You know, we're out there on the ground. We started in Seattle for a day, see, see Microsoft, see Amazon. Then we flew down to the valley for the rest of the week. We saw Google, Zoom, HP, Tesla, NVIDIA, many others. The, the kind of first thing is that you, know, you can have remote conversations or Zoom calls with managements as much as you want, but nothing beats being in the room with them, you know, asking them the questions, seeing the body language, and really being able to have the interaction and get to the nuance of what is happening. Does it make a difference? Because, Jonathan, of, of all the companies in all the world, you'd expect the ones in Silicon Valley to have pretty good Wi-Fi and excellent video conferencing facilities. So does it make a difference to be there in the room with them? Yes, I think it does. It's not only seeing them, but seeing the office around them, feeling the mood. As I said, a lot of the offices are very quiet, and that tells you something in itself, not only about the companies and how different they are. For example, many offices were empty. Tesla's office, where you have a very dominant you know, CEO founder, were full and buzzing. And you can see the cultural differences of the companies before your eyes. The other thing being, being out there in person is that, you know, from our side, you know, we had 15 people from different regions, different sectors. And actually the conversation in the bus between meetings was almost as fruitful as a conversation in the room with the management because we can reflect and bounce off each other. We will have a range of investors there with different strategies, different views, different opinions, and we can share and discuss and, you know, really tease out was that a good meeting? Was that a bad meeting? Why? Who? What? What was different? The other advantage of having a diverse group is that, you know, the ability to look across sectors and not just within the tech sector. What's as important as the first order of the tech implications is the second order implications to real estate, to automotive, to industrial, and how it affects other industries. And I think, you know, when you have a broad group with journalist portfolio managers, it's much easier to build that connection than if you're just doing a one-to-one -one Zoom call, you know, in your home, you know, just for half an hour. Let me pick up on that. What views that you might have had before you went have changed as a result of the trip? I think a few things to think about, you know, one, you know, we know we know there's a downturn coming, you know, we know things are going to be tough. 
But I guess it's, I think being able to differentiate and tease out, you know, rather than kind of universally throwing their baby out with the bathwater, you know, what areas are holding up better, what areas are worse. I mean, clearly on the consumer side, the, it came away from me to the consumer is tough. And we talked to the CEO of a major kind of hardware kind of gadget manuf- manufacturer, and he said, look, Amazon, you know, they normally take in a lot of stock ahead of Prime Day. They're not pulling this year. You know, and, and you can hear, clear, hear from the ground the anecdotes, the mosaic here, um, that, that consumer is in a tough place. But on the other hand, there are other areas, enterprise spending, cloud spending, 5G build-outs, which have got to be built, and they're not just for the next six months, they're for the next six years. And Calco CapEx, Telco demand, that's strong this year. And so, you know, when the market is selling everything um, and assuming everything is going to be bad, kind of talking on the ground, you can kind of tease out, actually, there's some areas that are better and there's some areas that's worse. So perhaps with the enterprise um, buying, they've got a longer horizon. They're not seeing their pay packets, uh, as consumers are, um, uh, diminishing in, in value month by month, as, as Anna was setting out. Um, Hyunho, what were your takeaways as you uh, reflect on the trip? So I think my key takeaway, um, first of all, you know, companies were um, quite positive about long-term demand drivers for technology. Um, as we coming out of pandemic, becoming um, living in the more normalized world, I think business continued to you know need to deal with a lot of issues. For example, like increasingly flexible working environment, like company need to do a lot of contingency planning, there are a lot of issues in the supply chain, you know labor shortages, which means we need more automation and things like. You know, even energy security and carbon reduction. And to achieve all those things, we need uh, digitization end-to-end. So that's why the end customer for those technology um, would demand more innovation and improvement. And that's why um, you know, companies feel more comfortable about long-term um, uh, demand driver. And then secondly, um, the companies feel increasingly you know, positive about pricing power. I mean, a good example is a semiconductor, for example. You know, semiconductors in the, in the past always deliver innovation and better performance at lower cost. Things have completely changed it, and semiconductor pricing is going up. You know, semiconductor company pricing power uh, reflect the, um, all those cost pressures that they face. And lastly, um, companies are increasingly focused on the profitability. So given the rising uh, rates, and higher uh, cost of capital invest- environment, investors are demanding you know, companies to show more profitability and the companies are uh, responding to it. Anna, let me bring you in on this. Um, and not that you went on the trip to Silicon Valley, but the, the point that Hyunho is making there about pricing power, about companies being able to pass on the costs that they are taking on to their customers, is that something that um, is being repeated elsewhere in, uh, in the economy, not just in the States, but, uh, but everywhere? Or will it come to a grinding halt? I think there is a huge variation across industries, but uh, yes, this has been uh, uh, the overall direction. Perhaps uh, to some extent, companies um, are taking advantage of uh, rising inflation and uh, rising inflation expectations. Um, I do think that 
uh, this is probably not sustainable over a longer term because uh, obviously as, as prices uh, go up and inflation continues accelerating, I talked about negative real incomes, at some point there will be demand destruction. Uh, and of course, the central banks are on the case. They're fighting inflation, even though uh, the tools are quite blunt. Uh, but at some point, you, you do have that economic slowdown driven by demand, driven by investment. Uh, and finally, uh, I think this uh, pricing power uh, comes to an end. But again, in terms of timing, uh, there's a huge differentiation across sectors. And maybe this is the point, actually, that um, you were saying in the studio, Jonathan, I, I, I'm going to come to you. Um, but the difference between companies that are dealing with consumers, and those that are serving companies, the enterprise, and the different horizon, the different um, lasting power that a company might have compared with um, individual consumers. Now, the pricing power, I think it's worth thinking about how it is different between sectors and, and how it changes in the technology world. I, I think if you look at the, the long run, technology spending has grown as a portion of GDP and as a portion of wallet for the last 50 years, and it's grown structurally. Um, and it's grown ahead of GDP. And, and, and in reality, technology is eating part of the pie owned by other companies. You know, why is this happening? You know, I think there's more adoption of technology and there's structural pricing power. The way I've always thought about this is that every year chips get faster, chips get more powerful. Every year, your iPhone can do more than the one from two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. And, you know, that's worth something. Having a new customer proposition, have a faster camera, a better phone is worth something. That gives technology companies, you know, in smartphone, in semiconductors, in cloud, you know, structural pricing power or rather structural ability to take wallet share and spending from other industries and other sectors. And, 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 and that propels the kind of long term growth in technology, which we've seen over the last 50 years. Growing its, growing its portion of economy, growing its portion of spending. And frankly, I see that there is plenty of runway to continue. You know, one takeaway from, the, from our trip was that, you know, in terms of real world adoption, there is still more to go. You know, we sat down with Tesla and Tesla made the point that, you know, 3% of cars in the world today are EVs. Well, in the age where 50% of the cars in the world are EVs or 70% of the cars in the world are EVs, you know, and the semi-contenting car in EVs is 50, 100% higher than in combustion engine cars, that's going to be more chips. That's going to be more spending on technology. And that may be less spending on steel and bodywork and other parts. You know, so, so I think there is real differentiation in sectors where it comes down to kind of pricing power or the ability to grab more of the economics from other industries. So it's, that, um, uh, it's what we all love about Silicon Valley, isn't it? The ability to look to the future and to um, really um, see what's coming down the line. You have incredible access to these companies when you go on a trip like this to, to Silicon Valley and they show you, they're trying to impress you with their uh, new products and new ideas. What was the most startling thing that um, struck you on this trip in terms of um, either a new gizmo, a new technology? I'm going to be super nerdy here because I am a sector analyst. I love being, being deep in the technology. Three letters. CXL. CXL is a new technology which will allow you to build a computer the size of a data center. At the moment, a data center is full of, of, of thousands of individual servers. CXL is technology which allows you to link those servers into one gigantic computer, which can process tasks or AI models a thousand times bigger than the ones you can do today. You know, imagine what you can do in terms of cloud services, you know, AI services, medical analysis, you know, new software, if you had a computer that was a thousand times more powerful than the one you have today. And how far away is that technology? It's happening next year. 
at, at the end of this year, the beginning of next year, you know, Intel and AMD server companies will be launching chips which support the CXL protocol for the first time. So I'd expect to see adoption ramping up over the next few years. Uh, excellent. I'm, I'm going to put it in my diary. I'm, I'm afraid we've run out of time now, but not uh, before we play hotcakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hotcake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Anna, I'm going to come to you first of all. I think I will um, uh, follow our team's um, uh, core asset allocation uh, decision set um, and uh, we remain underweight risk. So underweight equities, underweight credit, overweight duration. So in terms of um, uh, hot cake, I think within credit, we think it's uh, investment grade credit uh, and hot potato within that is high yield. Steer clear of high yield. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Xion Ho, what are your hot cakes? What are you buying? So a hot cake for me, I think some of the gig economy, the companies, for example, food delivery, ride sharing, and home sharing, etc. And I think the the consumer behavior has structurally uh, changed. So online, the booking for these older services is going to be structural. And this business has been challenged because of a lot of um, you know, competition driven by the easy money, but we are increasingly seeing industry becoming more the rationalized. So I think unit economics of these business will um, improve significantly. So um, this is where I see opportunities. That's your hot cakes. What about your hot potatoes? What are you dropping because they're a dud? I wouldn't say dud, but overall, <laughs> The, because the market has become quite um, defensive and quality-oriented and market likes the companies that have good visibility, so that's why the mega-cap tech company, tech stocks, have relatively uh, done quite well. So um, I would like to reduce exposure to um, those mega-cap that market feel um, as a safe haven. So safe companies, perhaps, but um, in terms of their market performance, uh, run out of steam, relatively speaking. Okay, and Jonathan, what about you? Your hot cakes, first of all, please. And hot cakes is semiconductors. I, I mean, look, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next next month or, or, or the next quarter. You know, the world economy is challenged, but semiconductors is a sector where you know, there is structural runway for growth. There is consolidated industry. There is pricing power. And I know when we get out of this, you know, revenues will be making higher highs and higher lows through the next few cycles. So I feel in a, in, in a time when the market is focusing too much on the near-term cycle and neglecting the long-term, semiconductors is the long-term, semiconductors is the future. And your hot potatoes? I, I think my hot potato is clearly Silicon Valley real estate. I mean, as I said at the start, <laughs> we're in the room, there's a CEO this year's assistant and tumbleweed. The employees were not there and you, know, you, could, you could see the, the, the power they had over their employers. Um, and, and a lot of them are staying at home. A lot of them ain't coming back. So we walked out of there feeling like, is there any way we could we could sell Silicon Valley real estate? Thank you very much, Jonathan, Hyunho and Anna. And also to Aneta Vinimko and Andrew McCaffrey. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then please like, share and subscribe. The producers were Holly Eastman and Steve Gardner. The production support was from Adam Sheldrake and Callum Blitz. We'll be back after a summer break. So until next time from all of us at Fidelity. Goodbye.
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.